Welcome to Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast, where we interview our industry's top female executives from Australia, New Zealand, and around the world. I'm Michelle Batsis, your host and the Chief Executive Officer of the Public Transport Association, Australia, New Zealand. We're raising the voices of women for everyone who works in public transport and mobility, and particularly for any of our listeners who are early in their transport careers and looking for inspiration. Each of our guests shares her views on the future of public transport and provides insights into their career journeys. Make sure you follow Women Who Move Nations on your favorite podcast platform and rate the show to help more people find us. You can also join our community on LinkedIn by searching Public Transport Association Australia New Zealand. We're also on Twitter at PTAANZ underscore or visit us at www.ptaanz.org. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. I'm your host, Michelle Batsis, and my guest today is Lara Poloni, the president of AECOM, which is a global infrastructure consulting firm. Thanks for joining me, Lara. Hi, Michelle. Nice to be with you. It's great to have you here. And I've got to say, I'm so excited for the conversation that we're going to have today. Um, I know we're going to cover a lot of topics, but to start with, I just thought it would be great if you could share about your current role and your key focus areas. Sure. So I'm the president of AECOM, uh, obviously a global organisation. Uh, so I have responsibility as president of AECOM for all of our design and consulting services globally, which uh, encompasses about 50,000 employees around the world. And our largest business is transportation, followed by what we call buildings and places, building engineering and a whole lot of other, um, specialis- specialisms around that. We have a, uh, an environmental business, water, program management, um, and and also energy, and then we also um, have a newer offering that we've brought together around program management. So it's a very diverse, vibrant bu- um, business around the world. That sounds like such a huge role, Lara. Um, really interesting portfolio and breadth, I think, as well, um, which is very interesting to think about because obviously with transport, there's such a cross-section as well with buildings and places and energy now given the decarbonisation agenda too so keen to hear a bit more about that but I've got to say first up it's really exciting to have an Australian woman leading such a large international company I did not realise you had 50,000 employees that is really significant. I mean I and I feel very privileged to have this role I've been working uh, for Acom for 27 years and I, I just came back recently from three years in the UK which I absolutely loved with my family as well which I think gave me just a much broader appreciation of particularly transportation and and transportation networks and systems around the world, as well as this very substantial sort of global role that I have now. So I'm in a very privileged position, I think. Yeah, and it's so great um, to hear, I guess, about that experience and then how you bring that into the role you have now, which leads me into the next question I have for you, which is a standard question we ask, but a very important one, I think. And if you could share a bit about your career journey and how did you end up becoming the president of ACOM? Well, it's a funny story. I 
as growing up, I always wanted to be a journalist and I, in fact, started journalism studies. And then I had, a uh, after a few months, a, a change in perspective and I un- undertook a an arts degree. I did honours in geography, which I think for me was really my passion and where really that intersection with land use, environment, transportation systems. I had always had a fascination for cities and I think to this day I still do and I'm I love the job that I have because it is at the end of the day about cities and about the preservation of the environmental, the social, um, and then just making sure that cities are functional, livable, all of those things as well. So being able to do that in a professional sense is hugely rewarding. So after my degree, I then undertook postgraduate studies in urban policy and planning. Um, By this stage, I'd started working in a small urban planning consultancy in Melbourne, we, you know, we we processed a lot of sort of what I would call standard development applications, but then we were also in a fortunate position to work on some major transportation infrastructure projects as the planning and environmental consultant. And that really did whet my appetite for major projects, major transportation projects. Um, and then that was the opportunity, it created an opportunity for me to join what was then called Mortsall, which was one of the legacy firms of what today is ACOM and um, I I just I I loved it I I worked on port planning projects port expansion projects major road projects um, rail aviation so all of the key transportation modes within a couple of years I uh, could say that I've, I've been you know involved in either the planning the approvals the development, um, and in particular, just having a first-hand appreciation of working closely with the proponents, you know, particularly public sector agencies who were um, developing these projects. So I loved it. I got a taste for that and I loved it. And for the bulk of my career, I have worked in the transportation and environmental sort of sciences part of the business, but then obviously in the last decade or so was then given the opportunity to work in line management, you know, a more traditional PL role, uh, regional management role. Then I was the chief executive uh, of the Australia and New Zealand operations of ACOM for three years. And then I went to London back in 2007, uh, 17, sorry, to take on the role of uh, chief executive for our Europe, Middle East, India, and Africa operations, which was hugely a huge learning curve and just such a great opportunity to experience different cultures, different ways of doing business. I had been a long-standing member of the Asia-Pacific team before that, so had spent a bit of time obviously in Asia, but uh, to have this opportunity to work in another part of the world and, and span so many different countries is, was just phenomenal and uh, taught me so much and a great family experience as well. But um, now, obviously, yeah, a bit challenged in terms of travelling, uh, you know, between Australia and the US in particular, but uh, hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll start to sort of resume some normality over the next year or so. But uh, no, that, that's, that's been a, an abbreviated version of the career story, Michelle, to answer your question. Yeah, but really fascinating to hear, Lara, actually, about that journey and very interesting as well, the different aspects that you've covered from that transportation and environmental perspective actually it's really interesting you sharing because I actually started out thinking I wanted to be a journalist too but it turns out I'm very passionate about cities so I can really um, relate actually to what you shared yeah absolutely so 
and you know, after uni, a lot of people don't know what they want to study. They think it's it's one particular subject area, but uh, following your passion is certainly the career advice I give to people every day because that's ultimately what I did, and it, it's meant that you know I, I love the job that I have, um, and the, you know that that uh, that is hugely satisfying. Yeah, I love hearing that too, actually, that you love the job that you have. I do as well. And I've got to say, I wish more people I met, you know, said the same thing. And certainly there's something about transport, though, where I do find a lot of people have a real passion for it, um, which is pretty exciting. Yes, absolutely. I mean, transportation is the essence of the city um, and, you know, in all its forms, obviously, including walking, cycling, as well as the, you know, heavy transportation that people usually see. And I think it is it has such a defining role in terms of how functional city is, how livable it is, and obviously setting the foundation for what cities of the future will look like. So I think, uh, again, a passion for transport in particular is something else that, uh, that I would say about myself. Excellent. This actually leads so well into the next question I had for you. You know, given that you've got this really unique perspective, I've got to say, you know, being in a global role uh, and obviously working with cities around the world, you know, transport's become such a big agenda item. In many jurisdictions, we've never seen the type of investment that's going in in public transport. I mean, it's actually unprecedented, particularly in Australia, where we know we are playing catch up on some infrastructure. I'm also seeing that in um, other areas of the world, including the United States. And while there's been a focus on transport infrastructure investment obviously with COVID as well we're seeing changes in mobility behavior that's certainly becoming I guess increasingly not necessarily an issue but something that's on the radar that we need to be working through around how we plan our cities given as well the changes in working practices we're seeing and I wanted to ask you you know if you just put your kind of crystal ball gazing um, hat on. What do you think the future of public transport and mobility is? It's such a, a great question, such a big one. And just as you were talking, Michelle, I mean, we, we do have a very, I suppose, um, yeah, we, we think that, um, you know, things might not be as, as rosy as they need to be with respect to the infrastructure that we have in our cities in Australia. But I've got to tell you, having had the opportunity to live away from Australia for three years. We are in a very fortunate, very mature, very developed uh, situation here because we have a very robust pipeline of projects. Um, our organisation, ACOM, I mean, we're so delighted to have played such a key role on just such a long list of very significant public transport uh, projects in particular. So whether it's you know, Sydney Metro, Parramatta Light Rail, cross, uh, the Cross City Rail in, um, in Auckland, Cross River Rail in Brisbane, Metronet, uh, Canberra Light Rail, Gold Coast Light Rail. The list goes on and on just in terms of the last few years of projects that just we as ACOM have been involved in. And as I said, there is a very robust pipeline ahead of us, um, you know, committed sort of um, budgets, a mature framework from which public and private sector can come together to further develop that pipeline, mature frameworks in which market-led proposals can be considered. So, and then when, when I arrived, for example, in the UK, I mean, there was all this sort of, let's call it pent-up demand around us. And as someone who caught the train every day, I sort of saw, saw that. And for a, and you know, a network that was so old and probably in places under-invested in, it was remarkably efficient. 
Um, but there's there's so much more that needed to be done. So I think we're in a very fortunate position because some of those frameworks, as I said, for further funding and and just just weren't there. So we're we're really leading the way, I think, with that. I think Canada is another place where I think there's a very robust pipeline of the next generation of public transport projects. And obviously, we're in a in an unprecedented situation now with the new Biden administration. Some very big commitments to um, addressing the, you know, chronic underspend in public transport and transportation generally, and a strong commitment to an environmentally sustainable agenda as well. So it's really exciting times, I think, in the US, and obviously that still needs to be all enacted and, uh, and confirmed, but I think there's a lot of uh, optimism about the, the US, and it's such a big part of the global transportation scene. And then I think uh, in, in Asia, I think we've, we've obviously had, you know, very well-planned and well-organised uh, networks for such a long period of time that work pretty seamlessly. So it is, it is interesting when you sort of apply the, the global perspective on where we are at from a transportation perspective, but I think Australia fares pretty well and New Zealand, I would say. Lara, it's really interesting hearing you talk about what's going on in the different jurisdictions and particularly the US and Canada, where we're seeing actually, I think, really strong leadership come out around transport and infrastructure. Um, I wanted to touch on COVID just for a moment, because obviously we're still very much in a world that is significantly impacted for, from COVID. You know, Australia and New Zealand, we are, we have been very lucky. You know, we are able to move around, albeit obviously we still have restrictions. Um, but what we are seeing around the world very much is changes in mobility patterns in the way that people need to move around their cities, suburbs and towns. And I wanted to ask if you had any reflections on that. Sure. It's such a, such an unprecedented time. So, uh I mean, and quite drastic, really, when you look at what the pandemic has done to ridership in places like New York City, obviously such huge reliance on the on the subway system there. I think some of the statistics were from the MTA that ridership plunged to 90%. So that's that's hugely significant and just very slowly sort of returning to levels of normality because people, people are really cautious. I mean, there is probably a uh, a perspective that you can catch COVID on on the sitting so close on on particularly on the under, underground network. So I think people are feeling more comfortable around that. We're certainly seeing um, more rapid returns to normality in places like the UK, where vaccination rates are moving ahead very uh, quickly. And uh, and even here in Australia, obviously, given our situation, uh, you know, people are back on the on the network. So I think as networks return to normal, the other big planning consideration, obviously, that was magnified during the pandemic was just uh, remote working and, and workplace flexibility. So that I know is having a huge bearing on future investment decisions. You know, as, as planners, what, what do you plan for in terms of typical days back in the office? Um, should we be thinking more about decentralised um networks so less reliance on the big capital cities and networks that need to assume certain you know levels of patronage all funneling into the central parts of big cities or should we in fact be taking a pause and saying well actually it's probably the second tier cities that are going to enjoy um, greater levels of population increase particularly from workers so I think that you know these are pretty seismic shifts in terms of 
high level thinking and planning for you know, public transport provision in particular. The other, the other big issue I think that we've seen around the world is the social inequity that exists in terms of accessibility to transport was certainly magnified during the pandemic. So you still had a lot of essential workers, uh, lower socioeconomic groups, um, still relying on public transport, whereas uh, more affluent communities and cities, I mean, we saw big shifts in ridership back to the, to the private car. So it sort of was one step forward, two steps back. But I think, uh, you know, planning for off-cycle uh, ridership on, on public transport in particular is probably the, the change in, in, you know, planning consideration that uh, is very front of mind at the moment. These, these different work patterns that uh, COVID sort of magnified and, uh, you know, those assumptions that will certainly be taken forward. Yeah, absolutely. And it's going to be really interesting, I think, to see how that might differ in different cities as well. I mean, I'm based in Melbourne. I know you are as well. And, you know, certainly I think that what I'm already seeing is Melbourne has a different work pattern established versus, say, Sydney, Brisbane or Auckland. So I think it's going to be interesting to see globally how that pans out as well. Yes, absolutely. And I think we're already starting to see the incorporation of even some of those planning considerations about how do we make sure that all social groups are being catered for in the next generation of transport projects. So the inclusion of, um, you know, on, say, rapid bus uh, projects, in ensuring that local community groups are being consulted and uh, very much included in the sort of parameters of, of planning and that that inclusion actually happens. Yeah, I think what's really interesting actually about the conversations that, that are happening in transport is there's very much more awareness now around what are the social outcomes? How can you address social equity issues and also the environmental outcomes that we can achieve as well? And you've mentioned environment a number of times, which really excites me because zero emissions transport is a key agenda item for UITP globally, as we are helping cities and regions on their journey to transitioning to zero emissions. Absolutely. So public transport has a huge role to play in decarbonisation. We've certainly seen it with a lot of the public transport agencies that we do work for. So, for example, uh, having worked recently helping Network Rail in the UK with their 2050 environmental sustainability strategy. We, we know obviously that car usage is such a big contributor to carbon and we know that public transport has, has a huge role to play in sort of reversing that impact and so enabling that, that greater modal shift that you talked about, Michelle, to public transport is a pretty big agenda item for many uh, governments around the world. We're certainly seeing that and we know that rail emissions typically are only about 1% of those carbon emissions. So I think, again, adopting a global perspective, all governments around the world are very cognizant of this issue now. Um, and so whether it's ele the electrification agenda is huge, hydrogen buses um, and, and obviously other environmentally sustainable technologies and, and planning practices, I, I think we've seen a real... Um, shift and, and it's a headline item now, whereas I would have said probably 12 months ago, two years ago, it was certainly up there, but not, the, not to the degree that it is now. And just coupled with just many more conversations about the resilience and sustainability of cities. So 
um, you know, planning authorities recognise that from even from a health, a basic health perspective, that people do want to walk more. They want to incorporate a walk as part of a, you know, choices that they have. And this is where even ticketing systems are sort of adopting to that too. So there's greater flexibility available for people to jump off that bus, complete their journey with a walk because it's good for their health. Um, and then obviously, if we can make that walk as pleasing as possible from an amenity point of view, as green as possible in terms of some of the boulevards or roads, roadways that we um, traditionally walk along. Um, I think I think all of these factors are very front of mind at the moment in terms of planning for that next generation of public transport projects. Yeah, which is really great to hear, I think, about the planning that's going on from the perspective of looking at the end-to-end user journey. And I, I think that's really critical. Um, Lara, I'm thinking now, uh, we've had such a great conversation about transport, but I, I want to kind of steer the conversation into a different direction. I want to hear more about uh, your work at AACOM. And, I mean, we've obviously talked about it being a global organisation, 50,000 employees. But what I'm really interested in, and, and I guess in some ways, um, selfishly, I, you know, I work in a global organization. I think it's really interesting how, how we're able to leverage expertise from each other. And, but obviously that has opportunities and challenges. And I wanted to ask you um, if you could share more about it, AACOM, how are you able to leverage the broad knowledge base you have across the world for the projects you're delivering? I think it's a, it's a great question and one that's certainly very important to me personally and to our global uh, leadership team and, and our chief executive, Troy Rudd, who I work very closely with. And having worked in the organisation for so long, um, I think you take for granted sometimes your local view or your local geographic view and that, and that context. And we realised probably six, 12 months ago, that there was certainly much more that we could do as an organisation to bring that more global linked up perspective uh, to bear on all of the projects and for all of the clients that we were working for too. And obviously we do so much work for public sector clients, but we also have a, a big portfolio of private sector clients too. But so many more of them through our client conversations were saying, look, we actually want to understand more about what is world's best practice and again bringing that to a transportation um, example a lot of the transportation agencies whether it's a roads agency or a uh, transit agency would say well what does good really look like in terms of uh, changing technology or the customer experience or you know ESG or best practice community consultation and, and that consultation one is a really interesting example because during the pandemic, um, as you would know, Michelle, I mean, so many big, you know, major infrastructure projects have a big component of public consultation when you are considering options for which way you're going to go. So we are used to probably conducting a lot of that consultation in person where, say, engineers and planners and scientists might come together in a public hall and sort of point and explain a concept. Um, a lot of that consultation was starting to move online, but it became critical during the pandemic. And so we uh, established some great, very innovative uh, public consultation tools. We had a, a, uh, a consultation um, mechanism on the A303, the Stonehenge project. And Stonehenge, I use that as a, a globally identifiable project. And so we're in the middle of the pandemic. No one could go and sort of view the site or talk to people. So through the sort of, um, you know, virtual reality mechanisms that we had, um, our teams did a great job of 
making this shift and still, you know, not affecting the timeline by moving that consultation and that interpretation and that visualisation completely online. And then we adopted that strategy and applied that global best practice to other projects in the US and in Australia. So again, that's a that's just a very simple example of how that global connectivity and best practice was brought to bear during the pandemic in a manner which ultimately benefited the community. So I think we've had uh, a lot of very positive feedback about that. I mean, a lot of our clients want to want to talk to project teams who have done it before and say it's a rail network uh, in Hong Kong. I, how, what were some of the lessons learned? What worked well? What would you do differently? Um, what has been the, the experience around that? We're, we're really sharing much more of that now through our Think and Act Globally strategy. So that's, for me, one of our sort of headline items in our strategy and our go-to-market uh, strategy at the moment. That was so interesting, actually, to think about um, what a different way of kind of approaching the problems, right, and to hear how you pivoted during COVID. Look, I mean, I've got to say, I think there is just so much value in sharing the lessons from different cities, particularly because I know for Australia and New Zealand, you know, there are some things that we are a bit behind on, but that allows us also to be in the position to learn, you know, and potentially not make mistakes that others already have. So I think that sounds like a great strategy. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I would say we we almost need to pat ourselves on the back a bit more. There are some great things happening in Australia, um, but there's obviously opportunities to, particularly from a technology point of view, um, take some of those learnings and and bring them to bear um, back here back here in Australia. But Australia's doing Australia and New Zealand, like I said, the proof is in the you know how these projects are being realized um the way they are being brought to the way they're being delivered at the end of the day so there's certainly more that we could do by continuing to look around the world as i mentioned integrated ticketing is one example where a big city like uh london or even some of the 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 big cities like new york or hong kong they probably I mean, obviously servicing a much greater population and having needed to address this earlier, the sort of more integrated way that they look at the public transport networks is certainly something that we continue to look at. Um, Obviously, we've had such a great pipeline of big urban metro projects that have been happening here in our backyard. And I think, I mean, I can talk certainly from an ACON point of view, some of the lessons learned from our experience working on some of the world's biggest metros and not just in terms of the constructability or the technology, but even, as I said, that customer experience and how to do community consultation more effectively, how to incorporate um, in environmentally sort of sensitive planning principles and all of that. I think that, again, that's the benefit of being a global organisation and having those diverse perspectives and ultimately bringing them to bear for the benefit of the the networks here on the ground. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so great to hear you talk about customer and community, which have always got to be central, I think, to the design and delivery of, of projects and services. I think as well, you know, you've talked a lot about the strategy that you're implementing at AACOM, but there's something else I wanted to talk to you about in terms of gender equality and diversity. And I know that you're driving a strong agenda in this space. I understand that is something you're personally very passionate about. So Lara, I would love to hear more about the strategies you've implemented in terms of supporting women, profiling women, and the kind of change that you're seeing. 
Sure. So I th- we have recently relaunched our global equity, uh, diversity and inclusion strategy. And obviously gender equality is a very significant part of that. I think uh, what we've done is, and our, our CEO, Troy Wright, has certainly launched this with you know leadership from the very top of the organisation. And it's, as you noted, something that is very important to me and always has been. I think uh, there's certainly more that we could do. I mean, it's, it is an, an ongoing sort of journey in terms of just trying to ensure um, that, you know, if we talk about women in particular, that they feel that they have the runway, the support um, to make all the, have all the choices that they, they need um, to realise their career aspirations. So, we do have an aspiration to increase the number of women leaders on our exec team and, and in fact, all of the global leadership teams around the world. And, and as you can appreciate, that's, you know, infrastructure, the business that we work in is one of the more underrepresented areas from a, from a you know, participation of women point of view. But we have been making, uh, you know, steady gains with that. I mean, obviously, I, you know, I'm very privileged to have the platform I have as the president of AECOM at the, the sort of top of the organisation. Uh, I think that gives me a vantage point experience and a, and a platform to certainly use that for encouragement for a lot of women in our organisation that, and sometimes it might feel like your career journey is, um, it stops and starts sometimes. So I think uh, a, a central part of our strategy is about workplace flexibility so that all women, and in fact, all members of our team feel that they have the flexibility to grow and prosper uh, regardless of which part of the business they're working in and that they are empowered and encouraged to have a conversation about what form that career journey takes. Sometimes it might be more of a a lateral journey to take on some different responsibilities in another part of the organisation and I think that's the beauty of AECOM. So I think our freedom to grow strategy, uh, which we have recently rolled out, which is ultimately about workplace flexibility and freedom to grow and prosper your career in the manner that that you feel most supported to and passionate about, I think that's central to our strategy at the moment. So obviously the strategies are different at different points in time and in, in, in different parts of the business and around the world. So for example, here in Australia and New Zealand, I can certainly share with you that our regional chief executive, Richard Barrett, has recently elevated two new managing directors. So it's it's approaching probably 40% uh, in terms of composition of women at the most senior levels of the organisation. And then in another part of the business, um, there might be some different goals in any given year. But we are tracking towards a, a goal in the short term of an overall female participation across all uh, roles of, of about 33%. That's the aspiration that we've set out. I mean, that's certainly great to hear. It's no surprise that female representation in transport and infrastructure is low, Um, but certainly I think that at the senior levels, more needs to be done and it's a lot of time that it's going to take and also a number of mechanisms and levers um, that can be pulled to try and help it get there. I mean, I think something very interesting, I know that AECOM's a Fortune 500 company and I was just doing a Google the other day Um, of the Fortune 500 companies, and I could not believe how low the female representation was at the senior ranks. In 2020, the proportion of female CEOs in the Fortune 500 was 7.4%, which is just crazy. And it got me thinking that, you know, you're in a role, you are the president of AECOM, 
We've talked about how large the company is. I'm going to assume that your journey hasn't always been so easy. And I wanted to ask you, what have been your defining moments that have got you to where you are and how have you stayed your course during that? I think, I mean, I'm not a traditional sort of three or five year plan type person. So I always wanted to, you know, look next towards challenges in terms of taking on something of interest, learning a different skill, uh, having a different experience um, or potentially working with different teams. So learning and learning some new skills was always uh, at the crux of that next chapter. And and sometimes venturing into the unknown, taking the plunge. I mean, even the move to the UK was a huge um, decision, not just for me, but for the family. But I was fortunate in that case to have um, a lot of support from my family to sort of take that adventure and do that. But looking be- before that, Michelle, I think I was very lucky um, when I reached a major sort of uh, crossroads sort of decision uh, when I Uh, I was already a director in the company here in Australia and New Zealand, had, you know, quite a lot of responsibility for clients and major projects and a large team. And I took time out for maternity leave um, for my twins who are now 16. And I remember the chief executive at the time said to me, we want you to just keep going with your career, take the time that you need. And they introduced paid maternity leave. I was the first ACOM employee that benefited from that. And I was very appreciative of that and I just appreciated the sort of conversations that happened at that time which is you know you just let's not have a fixed plan around this let's just stay in touch let's let's just see where this goes and then that's exactly what happened and um, so I had the opportunity to have a very flexible return back to work and I've felt hugely supported I think it is all about that at the end of the day if you know that you are supported by your manager or the sort of leaders around you, you can achieve anything. And it just takes care of a lot of that anxiety about, you know, is someone looking out for me? Um, do I have to prove myself again? So that was that was huge for me. That was for sure the biggest and most supported moment of my career. And from then I've sort of you know, really prospered, I think, and felt very supported. That's so great to hear that you've had such a positive experience and it gets me thinking right around how important it is for managers to support you and I'm really interested in hearing from you about your own management and leadership style. You know, how do you go about supporting your workforce to develop them? I think it is. uh, I always say to leaders that I work with and sort of the leaders that work for them, it is one conversation at a time and it is about constant check-ins. It's not just a once a year sort of let's sit down and talk about your goals. It's checking in. How are you going? Is there anything I can do to support you? What are, what are you thinking? Um, and to have that more proactive discussion around their careers. And I always say to uh, women in particular who ask me for this sort of advice, what should I do? And I say, well, manage your career like a, like a project. Take control of it. Sometimes you do have to be proactive about setting out what your expectations are and in particular what, what support you need from your managers And I think sometimes that unconscious bias may creep in, even when managers might have the best intentions, uh, it it does happen. And it makes me think about an episode that I had when my children were sort of three years old and our big boss said to me, I've got a great opportunity for you, but I don't think you're going to take it because you've got young children and I don't think you can, you know, I'm just thinking of you and because you probably wouldn't want to travel you're probably not going to be interested in it. And I had to stop him there and just say, 
actually, can we just stop right now? And can I actually think about this? Can you tell me more about it? Because my circumstances today around childcare might be able to, to change, you know, for the, for the better. And I might be able to find some additional support. And can we, can you tell me more about it? And to cut a long story short, we did find a way around it. He did tell me more about the job. I was instantly interested in it and I did take on the job and it was a great success. So that was a great conversation. And in fact, he and I talked about that example so many times afterwards. And he said, it was just such a learning for me because I approached that conversation thinking about how I best support you and take the pressure off you. And I was thinking about my own wife and the, the fact that she's been a stay-at-home mother and, um, and I, I didn't want you to feel pressure but I'm glad that you put your hand up and said, no, stop right there. Let's talk about this and whether it might be possible. So I think that that was a, a good example of sometimes where you do need to put your hand up and have that positive or proactive intervention in your own career. Thanks so much for sharing that story, Lara. It really gets me thinking, right, as women, I think we often almost prevent ourselves sometimes from exploring an opportunity, right? Um, when those biases come into the workplace, uh, it's really interesting then to see from, you know, different perspectives how they can play out, but then also, you know, how it is up to us, right, to challenge them and, and certainly to ask the questions and, and find out more. Absolutely. And look, I've said to so many women, I have been that stereotype in action. I probably am that stereotype still some days, but I, I there were so many years that I, and that I never once wanted to talk about my pay, for example. And I say to women all the time, come to your end of year uh, review conversation, come prepared to talk about your what you've done well, what you could improve on, what support you expect. Come prepared to talk about pay and, and just some of the benchmarks that are out there and uh, be bold, be bold and take control of your career. Um, so I, I think it's very practical and simple advice and certainly something that I try and remind myself of um, a lot as well. Yeah, it's great advice and it applies to all of us, right, at any age, I think. Um, and particularly the negotiating salary one, I think, is something that always comes up in conversations I have with other women. Absolutely. And look, it, the stereotype is true. I've had so many men and women that have reported to me and uh, I can tell you 100% that men are better at have, at framing and putting those conversations on the table. So um I think that's just that's just the way it is. But uh, women need to back themselves. Absolutely. Yeah, such great advice. And it really leads me into my last question, which I had for you, Lara, which was about what advice would you have, particularly for our listeners out there who might be early on in their transport career? I think a few things. Uh, one is to put yourself out there and just take it all in in terms of a different ex learning experience. So transportation is such a rich environment for learning and development. And obviously there are so many different modes. There are uh, through the, the projects that we deliver or the programs that we're involved with, there, there are ways to look at all of these projects through different lens each and every day, through the customer's perspective, through the proponents, um, through the communities that these projects serve. So, if you haven't had some of those experiences, go in search of those within your own organisation, take a chance, do something different that put, takes you outside of your comfort zone. Um, sometimes it is about moving to a different organisation. Sometimes it's about working in a different project team within the same organisation. Sometimes it's 
putting up your hand to take, learn a different skill completely or to learn um, under a different leader. So that, that's definitely one skill. I think you have to follow your passion, though. I mean, you won't go wrong following your passion um, and that will shine through in terms of how you do your job and, and how you're perceived by others around you. I think I mentioned the other advice, take control, take charge of your career, manage it like a project, uh, which means sometimes putting out your expectations. And I think, Michelle, my final piece of advice would be to be yourself as well. I mean, sometimes as women, and I've come across a lot of women, I've observed a lot too, obviously, in the years that I've been working and I've had um, women managers and male managers who feel that sometimes more Aggression means assertive and it's it's not sometimes. I mean, you can be assertive, you can be measured, um, you can have a strong point of view. You don't necessarily need to be aggressive about doing that, whether you're a woman or a man. So I think being yourself, backing yourself, having confidence in yourself, putting your hand up and asking for support. I think women sometimes don't ask for that support or that mentorship maybe as readily as men might. So I think all of those things at a, at a high level would be the more practical uh, personal pieces of advice that I would share with listeners today. Thanks, Lara. Some real golden nuggets in there. Um, and I've got to say, there is something about backing yourself, right? It comes up all the time in the conversations I have. Uh, and it's a good reminder. So for all of our listeners out there. Absolutely. So Lara, we have come to the end of the podcast questions that I had. Um, I just thought I'd ask, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to make a comment on or any last words you'd like to share? I would say it's a really exciting time around the world, not just here in Australia and New Zealand for public transport in particular, and such a uh, interesting time in terms of the ESG agenda and that just creates huge opportunities to really think more long-term about the, you know, the, the networks and the systems that we're planning for today. So I think it's a really exciting time to be a professional in this space. It absolutely is. And I've got to say, thank you so much, Lara. Really appreciate you taking the time today. You've been an absolutely fantastic guest. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Michelle. Thanks very much. That was Lara Poloni, the Global President of AECOM. I'm Michelle Batsis. Thanks for joining me for another episode on Women Who Move Nations, the public transport podcast. We'll have more amazing guests in the pipeline, so stay tuned. Thank you to everyone for listening to this week's episode of Women Who Move Nations. This series is co-produced by Cassandra Kadelka and Lara Rudd with copywriting by Sophia Dickinson. Please join us each week as we raise the voices of women in the public transport and mobility sector. I'm Michelle Batsis. Keep safe and keep our nations moving.